0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new movies and then connects them to old movies. And sometimes we just look at old movies just for the heck of it. Uh, My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, I am an arts writer for Local Express here in Halifax. My name
1: is Karsten Knox, and I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca.
0: And today we're going to take another dip into the list of great movies by Roger Ebert, some of which we'd seen before and some of which we have not. And uh, hopefully we'll come up with some great recommendations for you to explore. So this episode of Lends Me Your Ears is our second look at uh, Roger Ebert's look at the great movies or the movies that he considered great, his his four-star classics, going back through his career of film reviewing and beyond, back to films uh, that he grew up with and enjoyed. And uh, we're kind of loosely tying it to a recent release called Get Out, directed by Jordan Peele, a suspense, thriller, horror, satire that uh, touches a lot of bases and does it extremely well. And what we thought we'd do is maybe talk about that a little bit, but mostly get into uh, some movies that are on Ebert's list that deal with the subject of, of some sort of suspense or, or, or dramatic uh, tension and and try and link them all together it's going to be a pretty loose uh, conflagration of titles but uh, hopefully you'll enjoy this trip through a, a, a an interesting and, and not necessarily connected assortment of films <laughs> nicely done I think you did okay to try to 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 justify
1: our our collection of films I mean really we what we've done with these great movies is we've looked at the full list we've gone through and chosen ones that we either have an interest in seeing uh, or or haven't seen, or maybe have, a, have, have an interest in seeing a second time or third time and talking about uh, the the connections, are, you know, they're, they're a little bit, uh, the, the tangential uh, elements of our, of our podcast <laughs> is especially tangential this, this time, but that's okay. Uh, I think, if I may be presumptuous I I think that Roger Ebert would have loved get out and I uh, think so too and sure. I mean you know and suspense is is something that uh, I mean it, I think it's one of those uh, those qualities in filmmaking that is is perennially undervalued uh, you know maybe not so much back in the days of Alfred Hitchcock but certainly since then it's something that you associate with a lot of of genre movies uh, and frankly it's for me, it's the bread and butter. Like if, if a filmmaker can grab me and hold me and, and uh, you know, my last, my favorite movie from last year was the green room, which I think is oh, an exercise yes. in suspense uh, in <laughs> such a terrific way and get out. It definitely has a, a chance of, of, Making my top ten list in 2017, it was such a surprise. It's so clever. It's it's it 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 uh, uses the um, the sort of horror tropes and and suspense tropes from these kinds of movies, but then it has it's totally working from this perspective of race and and uh, sort of a satire and in sometimes very funny satire on. On the perspective of African Americans in the United States, and uh, and a fear of of sort of liberal white liberalism, this sort of hidden racism, which which uh, is you know a big part of, of the culture there, I think I think most people of color would say,
0: yeah, it's 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 definitely not necessarily uh, taking aim at, at the right wing, and it's 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 interesting where where the idea is that uh, we have a, a mixed race couple and they're going to. Um, the uh, white girlfriend's parents' home in, I presume, Connecticut. It feels very Connecticut to me. Yeah. Um, from New York. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, they go on at length about how much they admire the uh, the achievements of African-Americans and then the struggle and all that. But they also admire something else <laughs> about African-Americans. And it's it turns out to be kind of a community-wide thing. And, uh, again, uh, you know, we try... I mean, we did have a very spoilery show last time uh, we were on the air where we talked specifically about movies that have spoilers. And uh, in this case, I don't want to say too much, except to say that, you know, to, to describe this as a Stepford Wives for the the decade where it's not about gender, it's about race in this case. But that's, I'd say that's pretty much uh, the easiest way to, to describe this film.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it, uh, it, it's terrifically cast. Uh, the two leads, uh, Daniel Kiliua, uh I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He's a British actor who, I think if you're a fan of Black Mirror, which is a terrific uh, science fiction uh, tech anxiety show uh, he plays the lead and uh, he was also in Sicario uh, oh, that's and, right. and then uh, Allison Williams who I think people will know from girls mostly uh, are the lead couple and uh, and then uh, Allison Williams, her character, arose. Uh, uh, her parents are played by Catherine Keener and Bradley Woodford, who are really terrifically cast here. But, but mostly because they're so likable, these are yes, actors that exactly. you really like, you trust almost immediately. They they seem they've always seemed really great. Uh, so so putting them in these kinds of roles, amazing, amazing.
0: Yeah, it's a nice nice bit of turnaround, and uh, you know, of course, the truth gradually dawns. On our hero, that uh, something is not up, especially as he encounters other uh, other black members of the community who seem strangely either zombified or possessed or uh, torn in their behavioral choices, and uh, that, of course, is what uh, sets up the nightmare that follows. And it, you know, it is a nightmare that he has to escape from, and um, somehow correct. Uh, and uh, maybe maybe that's a good place to lead into uh, one of our great films that we want to talk about. Uh, speaking of of a real life living nightmare, and that is uh, Louis Malle's Au Revoir les Enfants, which um, is uh, ranks pretty highly in Ebert's great movies list. And I, I should know this was a this was I think a biweekly column that he that uh, Ebert would do where he would pick a film that either something that he'd previously reviewed or a film that he'd always loved over time and uh, he would alternate it with his answer man column which was also a lot of fun um but of course you know over time he accumulated enough of these great movies columns that he could compile them in i think two books yeah i think there are two books i think there's yeah. two books and I, I don't know if that gets all of them together or if there's maybe another one w- waiting in the wings but they're they're a great read there's certainly a nice contrast to his uh, i hated 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 i forget how many hated this movie um <laughs> book of pans so it's it's, it's interesting to contrast his reviews of movies like, I don't know, North and, you know, maybe Hudson Hawk or I Spit on Your Grave or something. I'm trying to, think, with with things like Louis, by Louis Mal and Godard and, and uh, Howard Hawks and so on. So um, Au Revoir, Les Enfants is uh, directed by the great Louis Mal, who uh, was, you know, kind of part of the French New Wave, but also kind of apart from it. He, he was, uh, his, his films, Weren't so much about uh, shaking up the bourgeoisie necessarily or shocking uh, the, the the cinema foundations. Uh, you know, he was mostly concerned with telling a good story, and you know, and carried that over into documentary work as well. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, this is this is, uh, I think, an '80s film. I don't have a yeah, it's '87. '87. 80, yeah. Um, but based on his own experiences uh, attending a Catholic boys' school in rural France uh, during the second world war. And uh, it's essentially uh, his own story. In fact, uh, the, the character of Quentin, a young student who's, um, you know, a bit rebellious, maybe a bit too smart for his own good is, is essentially Louis Mal. Um It's, it's, it's basically him. Uh, it's, you know, quasi fictional and uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, is, well,
1: is Quentin his surname or his first... I think I Julian. Think, Julian. I, think, I think Quentin
0: is his surname. Yes. Right,
1: yes, yeah. And there is an interesting connection with that name. Yes, which, we'll, we'll probably uh, get, we'll get to, to that. that at the end.
0: But um, uh, yes, Quentin, of course, everybody goes by their surname in a, in the boys' school. And I remember working in a place where everybody just went by their last name. It's always a, kind of a weird regimental kind of thing. And he uh, he befriends another boy who, um, who kind of keeps to himself. Obviously... His intelligence uh, is what draws the two boys together. And, you know, they, they have this tentative friendship. And uh, slowly it's revealed that, uh, um, at least to um, to Julian, it's it's not really much of a secret to the viewer. Um, but uh, he, he realizes that his friend is actually Jewish, who's kind of hiding out in this boy's school to avoid being captured by the Nazis. And his parents have already been taken away. And it's the, the father who runs the school who's uh, doing this good deed to try and. Keep some of these boys safe uh, and under away from the prying eyes of of the Nazis, who have uh, you know run over the countryside, and also uh, and perhaps even more villainous, because I think that's how they're pretty much portrayed in the film. Uh, the French collaborators uh, of the uh, you know the occupational government under Pétain um, that uh, that are basically helping the Nazis, and in fact they're viewed as being even worse. Uh, it's tr- it's funny that, eh? There's there's a number of scenes where.
1: Where the German soldiers are seen to just be like, you know, they're occupiers. They they're clearly not uh, welcome, but they are also they show kindness. There's they have just have an opportunity to show some kind of humanity and kindness to the boys. But uh, but yeah, these these collaborators with their black hats and their black coats uh, are are truly the presences of of of. of evil and and they are they are really shunned uh and very very negatively
0: portrayed in the film yeah they're they're basically the uh second world war equivalent of middle management weasels who are just basically sucking up to the boss in its case uh the nazis uh and uh are just are, are even worse than their masters in in that regard and you know there's a remarkable scene where the two boys uh they get lost in the woods while they're playing war games and um eventually they're in, they're in they encounter a uh, German patrol, and of course uh, the Jewish lad tries to run um, and uh, Julian is like trying to get him to be cool and uh, the Germans grab them and put them in the car, take him back to the school and then one of the German soldiers says, well you know we 're from Bavaria we're Catholics too uh, and it's you know it's just uh, and it's, you know these are clearly based on Mal's own experiences that you know some of these guys were we're human. It's, yeah, it, it, yeah. it would be a mistake to portray them all as being monsters as usually happens in second world war era films. But, uh, but of course there are some that are monsters and we meet them uh, later on in the film, of course. Yeah.
1: It's funny. You mentioned that scene, uh, Ebert in his great reviews, uh, singled it out. and I'm going to read just a quick excerpt, uh, Of what he said about that scene. The most important sequence, he called it, where Julian is involved in a treasure hunt in the forest of deep shadows, large rock outcroppings, and ominous early twilight. He gets lost, and it feels a little like Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is (laughs) another one of uh, Roger Ebert's uh, great movies.
0: Yeah, we talked about maybe doing that one. Maybe we'll save that for an Australian films show at some point.
1: Yeah. Um, Now he finds the treasure in a dark, hidden cave, and then he finds Jean, uh, his pal. Are there wolves in the forest, Jean asks. They encounter a boar who snuffles at them and waddles <laughs> away. Walking home after curfew, they are seen by two Germans in the car. Uh, Jean begins to run. The Germans catch both boys, basically what you the way you described here. Um, now, this is what Ebert says after that. Uh, yes, but the long day in the forest is the story of Julian's year, the story of lost wandering, surrounded by unnamed dangers. He competes with the other students, is isolated, discovers a secret, and can share it with only one other student, Jean Bonnet. The two boys never talk about Julian keeping Jean's secret. It doesn't need saying. Are you ever afraid, Julian asks. All the time, says Jean. So this is the the sort of like the overall mood of the piece. There's this, you know, there's a lot of great observations of what a boarding school is. And a boarding school in the French countryside in World War II pretty much is what I would imagine pretty any boarding school to be yeah. like. You know, the the boys who are, you know, tweens basically are constantly fighting, constantly teasing each other, constantly being cruel to one another. Yes, very much so. You know, in really petty and ridiculous ways as they are sort of, you know, fighting for pecking order. Uh, and, and, you know, school, uh, movies about, boys behavior and boys of this age often kind of make me like my skin crawl a little bit maybe because i maybe that speaks to my own childhood and uh and you know i remember very well the way that boys amongst boys would be uh at a you know at a certain age um but boy is this is this well uh observed and and you know there's there's it's made in 1987. Maybe aside from a little bit from the the hair the hairstyles, which okay, I don't know are entirely yeah. entirely uh, in period. It isn't a film that has any sense of when it was made. It feels really authentic to the period, and I really like that about the film. And I thought the young actors, their performances are terrific. Like I really felt like this the the character who who we see the world through, Julian uh, Quentin, uh, who is Mal's I guess um, proxy in the film, uh, you know, he's not that likable and he's very entitled and he's kind of spoiled. And I think that's a really challenging, interesting yeah. position or a choice for Mal to have made uh, because, because he's, you know, you don't warm up to him right away. You, you almost warm up to other kids in the class more than him. Uh, but as you go along, you sort of see his vulnerability as he starts to understand what his classmates are going through and this secret and how it kind of haunts him
0: yeah, and he actually looks a bit like 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 Mal uh, a little bit. I think there's a physical resemblance too that probably drew him to this this young boy who who I don't think had necessarily acted much before this and and didn't do much after. And the same for the uh, the actor who plays Jean, they're they're both kind of this is their shining moment more or less, I think and uh, and both acquit themselves incredibly. it's 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 shot at the actual school that Mal attended just for that actually you no know No kidding extra, I didn't yeah, know that yeah for that little extra bit of, of realism I guess and uh certainly he would have known every nook and cranny of the place which I guess you know uh and probably made it easier for him to shoot there since he already knew the layout you know probably by heart uh, yeah. even even all those years later um and the the, the place is probably virtually unchanged mm-hmm. since <laughs> yeah. when he went there you know some uh, some 40 years earlier uh and it's amazing he can return to it and and dredge up all these memories because it can't be you know he he I think in interviews he talked about how like the, 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 the final moments of the film, which is where the title comes from, Au Revoir Les Enfants, which is what um, the last thing the priest says to the boys as he leaves the school, um, you know, it was basically that's filmed pretty much as it happened. And then he said that, that moment it was seared in his memory, you know, so that it, yeah. it was almost like the film was demanding to, to be made. Like he, he, he was almost exercising some demons perhaps or some ghosts. <laughs> yeah. With this movie. Yeah.
1: And, uh, he it is devastating the ending it builds and builds to this final few scenes that are just just really crushing in a in a it's so sad and uh and i just yeah i was i was blown away by it and and i'm so glad that he got a chance to make this film uh i think it's worth talking a little bit about mal's other work uh i I hadn't seen au revoir les enfants so i'm really glad to have caught up with a uh for this for this podcast but uh but I realized when I was going through his filmography and trying to figure out what of his, I had seen or what I knew about him. It's pretty much late career stuff. And this is definitely late career yes. for him. 87. I think he died in 95. Yeah. Um, but my, the films of his, I, I recognized are all from the last 15 years of his life. Uh, Vanya on 42nd street. His last film is just amazing. Amazing. Uh, uh filmed, uh, uh, rehearsal of, uh, Uncle Vanya in a, in a dilapidated theater uh, in New York city with a, an amazing cast and uh, really terrific. It, it allowed me access to, I think that play, which I, I don't, I think i had had a little bit of experience uh, with Chekhov when I was uh, in high school, but uh, I didn't, I'd never seen it like this. And I, mm-hmm. I really felt like it, 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 it activated what's so great about that work for me. And I, I loved it. Uh, um, and uh, yeah and I'd also seen Damage which is probably one of his lesser works as Jeremy Irons and Juliet Binoche where this older man has an affair with the girlfriend of his son's girlfriend um So, uh, there's that one. There's also my dinner with Andre, which is a a classic and into its own a movie about a conversation and never has a conversation felt more compelling and on film than, than this one. Uh, and I guess I'd seen some of Atlantic city and I remember that pretty baby was kind of a, uh, a bit of a scandalous film. Brooke Shields plays a prostitute in, in period New Orleans. Uh, and she was a, like a, a, I don't know exactly how old she was at the time. Maybe fourteen or fifteen. Fourteen, yeah, yeah. So, 14. so there was that was also pretty a scandalous um, and controversial film. But uh, so all of those I had and I liked or enjoyed them in some capacity. But I didn't know his uh, his French New Wave era stuff, and I still that stuff I still
0: need to explore. Yeah, I've been catching up with some of that film, some of those uh, earlier films. Things like well, his debut I think was Elevator to the Gallows, which is. Kind of, you know, it's like a Hitchcockian episode, uh, exercise in a way, which, of course, uh, all the, the French New Wave directors admired Hitchcock immensely and um, each did their own kind of variations on on trying to capture what he did. Um, Miles is pretty successful. I mean, for a debut, it's, it's, it's pretty fantastic. And uh, it also has an improvised score by Miles Davis. So, you know, that, that's how I found out about the film initially. I found the album uh, years before I ever saw the movie. Um, and uh, I've seen some other of his early films and, and you know, they kind of um, impress in different ways. I mean, I, I think uh, the French New Wave was kind of his ticket to to making films, but I think he was looked on as maybe being a little more bourgeois by people like Truffaut and Godard, I guess. And But, you know, he also made films that were, were popular and got a lot of attention and, and uh, you know, he was a little more maybe diplomatic with, the, with the, the film industry at large, uh, perhaps than, uh, than other filmmakers of his generation. But, uh, you know, it's, it still is a pretty fine body of work. And uh, if you have a chance to see Au Revoir, Les Enfants, I uh, highly recommend it.
1: So the second film on our uh, look back at uh, three movies in uh, Roger Ebert's great movies list is Body Heat. Now, here is a film from 1981 that I was familiar with. uh, It was written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan. Now, any uh, Star Wars nerds out there will recognize that name. He's the writer of Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and uh, he was brought back for the recent uh, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. He also wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he is a director of some, some Achievement, he uh, wrote and directed The Big Chill, Silverado, Grand Canyon, which is a film of his probably mostly lost. To, I don't know if people rec- remember Grand Canyon. It was kind of an, uh, an attempt uh, from a privileged white perspective to, <laughs> to discuss race in America, which I think should be applauded. I don't know if it's entirely successful. Yeah, but, I was not a fan of Grand but Canyon. Uh, but I, I got what he was going for. Um, anyway, he was also involved in the Bodyguard, Wyatt Earp. And a bunch of lesser-known movies in recent, more recent years: Mumford, Dreamcatcher, Darling Companion. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he uh, directed but didn't write an underseen comedy that I liked uh, back in my uh, college days, my undergrad days, called "I Love You to Death," which has <laughs> yes. a terrific over-the-top performance by Kevin Kline. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty outrageous as a yeah. comedy. Yeah, but uh, Body Heat was his neo-noir, his sort of ode to double indemnity and all of those great noirs of the 40s and 50s. complete with a shot of Kathleen Turner's gams. Uh, if, if people even use that word anymore, I, I, I just In this
0: context, I, I, think it, I think I'll allow it.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> and that casually apes the one that Billy Wilder used to introduce Barbara Stanwyck as she comes down those stairs in Double Indemnity. It's also got a little bit of The Postman Always Rings Twice, which interestingly was also remade around the same time as Body Heat with Jack Nicholson and Jessica Lang. Uh, it's got that... Venetian blinds things, even got a fedora. Uh, it's kind
0: of a, a bit of a joke, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's very much. They're, they're very much winking at us with, yes. the, with the fedora. for Yeah, sure.
1: um, it's a movie. It's set in Florida, which seems like maybe a strange place to set in noir until you remember Key Largo. Uh, it's hot. It's very hot in Florida at this time of this when it was shot. Uh, every scene has a fan or an air conditioner. Everyone is sweating all the time. And if they're not just sweating, they're talking about the heat. Hmm. William Hurt plays Ned Racine. He's a not too bright lawyer. Uh, but you know he's, he's got a cunning about him, like a low cunning. He's the kind of guy who, who, uh, who runs for his health, but then when he quits running, when he stops, he always has a <laughs> cigarette. Um, and in this little floor town, he gets sort of picked up by the femme fatale played by the amazing Kathleen Turner in her debut. Uh, I gotta say, Turner was kind of the movie star crush of my youth, uh, and I was thrilled when I discovered that she graduated from my high school. Uh, Because I went to high school in in the UK, I went to the American School in London, and uh, she graduated back in 1972. And and at the time she was becoming a a star, I was getting to movies. And so when I discovered this, I immediately ran to the library, you know, checked out all the old uh, yearbooks and found her her, uh, graduation yearbook from 1972, Kathy Turner. Who was really into? Wait, what, she, into so theater. it wasn't her
0: picture with a different name, nope. and then her name on somebody else's picture. <laughs>
1: no, it wasn't. It was her actual name. Um, yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it is. I, I gather that um, uh, that not everyone loved this film. Uh, <laughs> that that when it came out, that the whole idea of doing a noir was considered sort of. Gauche and it was a pastiche and wasn't taken that seriously. But looking back at it now, you know, it's funny. Those things that might have seemed seemed kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, a little too obvious or self-conscious in the 80s, like the Venetian blinds, like the style, like the incredible John Barry score, which is just perfect. Uh, now, looking back at it 30-plus years later, feels, I mean, it does feel like the 80s in some ways, but that style was popular in the 80s there, there was a return to noir in the 80s the venetian blinds and the light through the windows was just a feature of of filmmaking and style at the time uh so so it doesn't seem as out of place as it might have seemed when it was f- when it first
0: came out well you see that style a lot in music videos yeah, of, totally. the t- of the time usually with a lot more fake smoke <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah that's right which is what makes it kind of more 80s a- adrian um, line
1: and uh, and ridley scott a lot of that because they came from commercials and they used that a lot in the
0: commercials. Oh, for sure. So it's it's an effective updating of the style, and and it, it is it is remarkable how well it has aged. Uh, you know, compared to, um, you know, well, for example, the, the Postman Always Rings Twice remake didn't work for me. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, it didn't. Uh, there was something I don't know what, what. It's been a
1: while since I've seen it, but I remember not enjoying it nearly as much as this.
0: Yeah, I, I think in that case it was just, uh, you know. The, they tried so hard to recreate the 40s atmosphere. It felt a little forced, maybe. And then, and then, you know, but then introducing explicit sex and violence into that. And somehow, you know, you're just kind of thrown off guard because, especially if you've seen the original movie, it just, uh, it just didn't work. Of course, I'm not a big Jessica Lang film fan, so it doesn't, that doesn't help either. But, but and, uh, and, you know, Nicholson playing a dupe. Doesn't uh, yeah doesn't it, really work out so well
1: it's either? It's true. It's true. He's he's got a kind of a natural intelligence that he has to work against in that kind of a uh, a film. Whereas somehow uh, William Hurt pulls it off. He seems very uh, he seems he seems like he's got a certain kind of of sort of animal quality intelligence to him. But really at the same time you realize it's ego it's like his ego yes. is keeping him from from understanding what's really going on and and in the same way as we're seeing the story through his eyes i think we might also be duped in a way that's that is really great i love that feeling of like something is going on here and i'm not realizing what it is it's
0: too late <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh yeah he he's he's smart when it comes to figuring out his own angle mm-hmm. but uh can be easily led in other directions yes <laughs> literally being led by whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. In a scene. Yes. Particularly. It, in one particular scene. Um, well, but more than one. Mm. I don't think about it, but yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it, it manages to balance the contemporary and the classic in a way that, that few films can, um, you know, I think maybe the Cohen brothers have, have done it, but, but it's, you know, there's, there isn't that kind of overwhelming archness here. Uh, I think, I think Kasdan like legitimately loves, uh, the form and, and and also has some sort of affection for these characters, even while they're doing bad things. I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the story basically is that
1: uh, Ned and Maddie, uh, these characters uh, fall, fall in love with each other, have this torrid affair, and they decide to kill her husband. Uh, you know, things don't go as well as planned in these movies. They rarely do. Uh, Roger Ebert wrote that... Women are rarely allowed to be bold and devious in the movies. Most directors are men, and they see women as goals, prizes, enemies, lovers, and friends, but rarely as protagonists. Turner's entrance in Body Heat announces that she is the film's center of power. And then he adds. Hurt had been in one movie before Body Heat, Ken Russell's Altered States, in 1980. He was still unfamiliar. He's a tall, already balding, indolently handsome man (laughs) with a certain lazy arrogance to his speech, as if amused by his own intelligence. Body Heat is a movie about a woman who gets a man to commit murder for her. It is important that the man not be a dummy. He needs to be smart enough to think of the plan himself. One of the brilliant touches of Kazden's screenplay, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, is the way he makes Ned Racine thinks he is the initiator of Matty Walker's plans. <laughs> uh, yeah, it has, the film has a terrific energy to it. And uh, it is something that, uh, that I, and I love the supporting cast. And yes, we really you're need you're to give my sh- mind there. <laughs> a shout out to them. Uh, it, it, as a, as a fan, a longtime fan of Mickey Rourke, especially his work in his in his 80s, in the 80s, uh, he, this was kind of like one of those he's – he's in two scenes in this film. And you look at him and you go, oh, this guy's going to be a star. He just has that immense kind of charisma that he brings across as Teddy, who is basically an ex-con who knows about bombs and uh, – he is so good in the scenes where they, they cut to him and he's singing a, a Bob Seger song. I feel like a number <laughs> in his like in his kind of workshop slash apartment. And uh, it's so great to see him in this. I, I, I yeah, if if people only know um, Mickey Rourke from The Wrestler or the way the kind of movies he's been making the last few years, and I'm glad that he's still working because I still enjoy seeing him. You, know, you need to go
0: back and see some of his early stuff because he is he's so potent. Well, we did talk about Angel Heart, and he's yeah. terrific in that. And uh, I'm actually a big fan of Year of the Dragon, uh, which was Michael Cimino's, uh kind of attempt at a Chinatown film noir kind of film, which doesn't entirely succeed, but he's great in it. Yeah, uh, uh, Johnny, is it Johnny Handsome? Johnny Handsome, yeah, uh, is another. Yeah, another good one. Totally, yeah, um, that is a good one. So, uh, and so you can see all that potential in, in, just those two scenes. That's, that's pretty remarkable. And, uh, of course we, we, we can't let out, uh, Ted Danson who, uh, plays, a kind of, uh, Lowenstein. Know, yeah. He plays Lowenstein. <laughs> Ted Danson is a guy named Lowenstein and, uh, just put a big pair of horn-rimmed glasses on him and he sells it. But, uh, he, uh, he, he's kind of Racine's drinking buddy and confidant and, and, um, you know, and surprisingly, like, kind of lets him in on what's actually going on on the lawful side of things, even though it's probably not in his best interest to do so. He kind of has a sort of, you know, loyalty <laughs> to his uh, fellow uh, law practicing chum, I guess. Even though yeah. they're adversaries in the courtroom, they have this kind of interesting offbeat friendship uh, uh, outside of the courtroom.
1: Yeah, and he's so good in this. He has he has kind of a light touch. He, he's he's I don't know if he's a, a dancer or he just likes musicals or something. There's there are moments where he sort of swishes into the room and swishes out, and and he he's so uh, he's so great that it makes you wonder uh, what his career might have been like if it wasn't for Cheers and and it, all the television work that he had done. He he could very well have been sort of a leading man in in uh, in movies.
0: Yeah, it's they don't even really explain why he's always kind of dancing and sashaying around. It's just this thing that he does you know maybe <laughs> yeah maybe it's like you know he's he likes to like move around in the courtroom um you know the, who knows maybe there's some deleted scenes that explain it but it's kind of interesting that they, they they leave it unexplained that he's just this guy who kind of dances through life essentially and uh i you know i love that aspect of it even in uh, and maybe maybe you picked up on this too like when there there's a scene where they have to dispute uh the husband's will um, spoiler alert, he does get killed. Uh yeah, It's Richard <laughs> uh, Krenna Richard, plays the husband. Richard Krenna, who's this plays this great kind of Vulgarian uh uh real estate developer type, um, you know, who's a bit on the shady side and he's terrific too in his brief uh appearance in the film. But uh there's a scene where they're they they meet with another lawyer to talk about the husband's will and uh and Ted's there. Lowenstein is there, uh with uh uh, the uh, deceased's sister, who was supposed to be cut in on uh, the inheritance, um, and then after they all leave, and at that point, nobody knows. Like nobody knows that Ned and uh, and Kathleen Turner's character, whose name uh, Maddie, 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 they, Maddie, doesn't Walker, know that uh, Ned and Maddie are kind of. He suspects, but he doesn't really know that they're in, you know more involved than uh, lawyer and client. And uh, they go out and they're in the parking lot and they're saying their goodbyes to their respective clients. And then in the background, like so, so they're at. They're at Maddie's car. And just in the far background, you see uh, Lowenstein kind of dancing his way through the parking lot. <laughs> and it's it's in the far, far back of the shot. Like, you would never even... Uh, and I think, like, Hurt kind of just glances at him just sideways uh, when he's doing it. Uh, and, you know, I just... I. I actually had to rewind it because I didn't wasn't sure that I actually saw what I saw. <laughs> it's a perfect character yeah. touch. That is, it's such
1: a joy. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's some great stuff. He gets some great lines. There's a moment where they're meeting to discuss the will, and uh, and everyone pulls everyone in the room pulls out a cigarette except for (laughs) Lowenstein and they, well, someone offers him a a cigarette and he's like, no, I'm just going to sit here and breathe the air. (laughs) It's such a good moment. Uh, You know, and there is a lot of that. There is a little bit of of humor in this.
0: The the other moment where they're on the boardwalk or the, and uh, Hertz been jogging, as you mentioned, he was jogging immediately pulls out a pack of smokes after his jog. And uh, offers one to Lowenstein. But instead of giving it back to him, he just he kind of looks at it and then throws, throws it away. away. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I guess maybe he's trying yeah. to quit. I don't know.
1: Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, moments like that. I I, uh, uh, I I love there's a scene where uh, Ned is getting out of his car, and I think he's maybe gone down to Miami, and uh, he sees a clown driving a red convertible. Oh, what the hell? I know, just out <laughs> of the blue. And he just kind of is fixated with this. And, of course, Ned drives a red convertible convertible a a classic (laughs) corvette uh and you know i it's it may be in in terms of uh of symbolism it might be a little bit on the nose on the red nose but it is such a great moment there there's a lot of room in uh in body heat and it is it is really it's a classic it's a wonderful film to revisit maybe that's a florida moment
0: uh (laughs) because you know i you know they, they don't overwhelm you with the Floridaness of the story. You know, they, they kind of set the stage early on. Um, but it, you know, it could have easily been set in California or, you know, New Orleans or wherever, but, but, uh, given that that's where, uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey are based in Florida. So maybe seeing a clown driving a, a, a vintage red convertible down the street isn't such an unusual thing. If you're close to Sarasota or wherever this, I think it's a fictional town, Pine Haven or whatever it's called. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, the, the heat makes people do crazy things. And Florida is a particularly crazy place, uh, as I know from my own visits there. And, and uh, you know, just any news story you happen to hear come out of Florida, especially around election time. Um, you know, that, that behavior gets a bit extreme uh, in the, uh, the dangling state, uh, as it were. So uh, it, it kind of lends a certain credence to those kind of extreme touches, I guess. <laughs> Cameron Wilson, host of the Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food, it's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So our third and final movie in this delve into the great movies, the suspense edition, um, is, uh, a film by Jean-Pierre Melville, who was a great French filmmaker who predates the new wave, but was highly admired by the young directors that came up, uh, through the mid fifties and up, uh, and through the sixties. Uh, you know, his films are more of a kind of a classical approach to filmmaking inspired by American film noir and gangster films. Uh, but They're oh so French, <laughs> you know. They really, they really uh do uh take those uh ideas and then completely transform them uh into a world of nighttime cafes and rain slicked Parisian streets and citron de chevaux everywhere. It's it <laughs> and and you know, espressos, it, it really does reek of European atmosphere uh with this uh. Really incisive look into the world of crime, and uh, we picked a film off the list that uh, I, I hadn't seen and Carson hadn't seen. I'd, 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 I was familiar with Bob Le and um, Le Samurai, yeah, those are the ones a- I, a- Alain I knew. Delon. Well, yeah. yeah, so we we picked Le Cercle Rouge, which was another one starring uh, Alain Delon, um, who of course was the, the kind of the leading French matinee idol of the 1960s, uh, and uh, also featuring the great Yves Montand. And uh, Italian actor Gian Maria Volante, who most people know from uh, his appearances in Sergio Leone Spaghetti Westerns. I believe he's in both A Fistful of Dollars and for a few dollars more playing different characters in both films and uh in one case playing a villain and in the other playing a good guy. So uh clearly a versatile actor and and well used here. It's interesting to see him in in contemporary setting without his mustache. Uh, yeah, for, yeah. As well. I think maybe Ebert re- remarked that he looked younger. He actually looks younger because he's got longer hair and yeah. and uh you know, of course the the spiffy clothes and everything. Um so, you know, as usual we're in the criminal element with uh with Melville, his, his two, his two favorite topics seem to be either the world of crime and gangsters and, and two bit hoods or the second world war and the French resistance. Um, and I think there's some mention of the resistance because of, there's, there's echoes of that kind of, uh, sort of ringing through the lives of these men, especially the, the older uh, officers uh, on the police force who have uh, lived through that either on one side of, uh, the resistance or the other, but, uh, the focus is on a, a trio of, uh, of criminals uh, who essentially make up this circle uh, as uh, as delineated by the title and it starts with a uh, a ostensibly Buddhist quote which uh, I've heard isn't necessarily a Buddhist quote at <laughs> least in Ebert's uh, essay on it he says that uh, Melville made it up and <laughs> attributed it to Buddha so uh, and essentially that if, if you know men are destined to meet they will meet and be drawn into the red circle as it were and uh, in this case uh you know, the, the red circle is also a kind of a circle of destruction, as it were, <laughs> you know, a, spir- a downward spiral into uh, their inevitable fate. Um, we've got Elaine Delon's Corey. He's a, a criminal, a career criminal who's uh, just out of jail and does not want to uh, go back and is determined to, to stay on the straight and narrow, even though just before he leaves a prison guard tells him he's got a great idea for a, a heist <laughs> um that that you know would would make him rich and he's like you know kind of dubious about this information but um you know the the, the fact that it's coming from a prison guard just makes it that much more juicy i guess and then we have uh, Volante as Vogel he's a, a uh, he's actually on his way to jail um handcuffed to a police inspector on a train uh, who cleverly picks his handcuffs and jumps out the train, you know, smashes the train window and runs off into the woods, um, eventually hiding in the trunk of Corey's car. And uh, Yves Montand, uh, we meet later in the film, uh, he's a sharpshooter, former, a former police officer, who's uh, now uh, kind of an alcoholic has-been, Who was known for his marksmanship, but uh, can barely steady his hands, which is a character we've seen before. You know, the the gunfighter with the shaky hand. I I think Dean Martin played that character in uh, in Rio Bravo, and maybe there's a sense that there's a bit of the Ford Western. (laughs) Or the Hawks Western happening in this movie too.
1: There's a great uh, scene where Eve uh, Montan, where he's introduced, and he's in this sort of shambling uh, residence of his, and uh, he's, <laughs> he has scene. the DTS. He's seeing li- lizards and rats and uh, and all these these critters crawling up the bed. Uh, and it's it's I mean it, it's right out of a, like a horror movie. It's kind of a strange strange moment in the film, but a, a great one. Uh, yeah, I I uh, I really liked Le Cercle. Rouge the red circle uh, it's from 1970 and yeah and I, I sort of knew what I was into or was in for having seen Bob Le Flambeur, which I also really liked and I happened to by the way really like the remake of that film by Neil Jordan oh, called The, good thief, the yeah. good thief yeah starring Nick Nolte and Ray Fiennes um yeah. And, and so, yeah, I knew that this was sort of where it was going, uh, this, this sort of, uh, honor among thieves, uh, you know, the, the, this, this film that, uh, that loves the, the gangster movie, the American gangster movie, but has that, has to have that sort of French thematic seriousness, like it's, it's not just a genre exercise, it's, a, it's, it's an opportunity to say something about humanity and about men, uh, and we're constantly reminded of that through the film, um, I wasn't also surprised to see that uh, this revival, this film when it was reproduced for Criterion is uh, by John Wu. I guess he was a
0: he's a re- big fan. Oh, he's a huge fan. I mean, I, I, I mean that's how I first heard about Melville in fact, was reading like the liner notes on the Criterion laser disc for the killer. and, uh, and there's you know there's like an interview with Wu um, included in there and he talked very, uh, he had talked about how Alain uh, Delon was his big inspiration for the character that uh, Chow Yun Fat plays in The Killer, um, you know, the and the samurai was basically the template. You know, this cool, collected assassin is basically the character that uh, Jean, uh, that uh, Chow Yun Fat plays in The Killer uh, to the to the le- level that uh, in The Killer he's wearing. Uh, Elaine Delon branded sunglasses <laughs> uh, that, that that's like, that's kind of the tribute and that Delon was such a big star in France that he could have his own line of, of sunglasses. And then they appropriate those for the killer, which is inspired by Melville's film with, um, some of the usual, uh, John Woo mel- Melodrama layered over it. Um, and, uh, you know, he talked at length about his admiration for those films. And at, at that point, uh, those films are real hard to see, uh, in, uh, in North America, they weren't on video anywhere. And, um, you know, it was only slowly that they started to come out. Uh, I think I saw Le Samurai on a bootleg videotape that was taken from a French recording. Uh, and then eventually, Bob Flambour came out on uh, DVD. And then um, some of his other films showed up as well, mostly through Criterion. And, uh, you know, I, I really got drawn into this world that he creates in these films. Uh, and this one, of course, it's all about... Uh, the, the Red Circle also... Uh, Indicates kind of a, a badge of honor, like you say, honor among thieves, even in the one thief who hates Alain Delon's character and has appropriated his, uh, his girlfriend, um, is a, a gangster who runs a nightclub and, and, uh, at the very start of the film, uh, uh, Corey, uh, takes back some money that, um, he feels this guy owes him. I, I'm assuming he went to jail and didn't snitch and, uh, and kept the other guy out of the hands of the law for some unknown, uh, caper. Um, but, uh, yeah, his former boss doesn't like, uh, the fact that, uh, he's been stolen from, even if the money was, uh, deserved and, uh, he kind of, you know, the police want him to help, but he wants to get him on his own, I guess. You know, he keeps sending thugs out after Corey with, um, with not great results. And, uh, and, uh, you know, eventually the police kind of, I mean, the police are just as smart as the, as, as the crooks, which is, uh, one, I think. One of the appealing things about these Melville films is that the, nobody's playing dumb, but they all have their own code and their own procedures to go through. And, uh, you know, we, we, get, we get both sides equally. In fact, the movie is, it's two hours and 20 minutes long and did not feel anywhere close to being over two hours. It, it goes, you know, it's, it's so methodical in its storytelling, and, but so precise in, in its character and setting up uh, its sequences that you don't notice the time Passing at all in this film. Like I was surprised to learn how much how much time he'd spent watching it when, when it was over. I was qu- kind of shocked actually. Yeah, absolutely. It clips along really well.
1: Uh, I just love the look of the film, and I guess this is true of most of Melville's films, but uh I love how Delon is so cool. How every almost everyone wears trench coats. And uh, and it's uh and Delon has his features. I remarked that his features are so fine. I thought for a second he might be a, like a drag king because he's, he's almost this feminine quality with this mustache, which doesn't necessarily seem like it is actually his mustache. Uh, but he's, yeah, he's totally compelling. Uh, and, you know, it's great, this, the, the, the character stuff between his character and Vogel, uh, they meet in such an unusual way, this feeling of destiny that like, uh, he, he knows he's in the trunk of a car and he knows he's, he's the fugitive, but he sort of feels like we are brothers. We are of the yeah. same. Uh, we are cut from the same cloth. Therefore, I immediately trust you. And there's never a moment in the whole film where you ever get a sense that these guys have any doubt in each other, despite the fact they have no history together.
0: Yeah, he voluntarily gets back in the trunk, and uh, you know, is is back on his way as as this plot starts to unwind. And um, going back to the the Ebert essay, of course, he talks about the fact that the center point of the film is this huge jewelry heist, which is the the basically the caper that was um, suggested to Corey at the start of the film. Um, You know, they decide to go through with it. And of course that's when they, Eve Montan comes in. They need his skills to uh, use a, uh, his crack, uh, Sharpshooting to disable an alarm system. And uh, so it's, it's a masterful sequence done almost in complete silence. And it's an obvious nod to the silent robbery heist scene in Jules de Sands' Rafifi, um, which is from, I think, the, sometime in the mid-50s, um, which is one of the great heist movies. If, if you've never seen it, there's another one to check out. I'm sure it's probably on the list as well. Um, but, but, but as Ibra points out there, the heist is kind of the point of the film. Uh, of of Rafifi and it you know it's a great point it's a masterful uh, sequence Um, here we have a similar sequence just as well done and well executed but it's it's just something along the way like it's just part of the story it's not like the thing we're building up to the whole time and uh, you know it's really more about the characters and uh, the the circle that is ever closing in on them Yes, absolutely. I want to
1: take a moment here to uh, to read something that Ebert wrote from his review. Uh, I'm going to read the opening paragraph and the closing one uh, from Ebert's review. Gliding almost without speech down the dawn streets of a wet Paris winter, these men in trench coats and fedoras perform a ballet of crime, hoping to win and fearing to die. Some are cops and some are robbers. To smoke for them is as natural as breathing – they use guns, lies, clout, greed, and nerve with the skill of a magician who no longer even thinks about the cards. They share a code of honor, which is not about what side of the law they are on, but, how, but about how a man must behave to win the respect of those few others who understand the code. And then this final paragraph is this, Melville fought for the French resistance during the war. Manola Dargis of the Los Angeles Times, I guess she's now with the New York Times, Mm. in a review of uncanny and poetic perception, writes, "...it may sound far-fetched, but I wonder if his obsessive return to the same themes didn't have something to do with a desire to restore France's own lost honor. The heroes of his films may win or lose, may be crooks or cops, but they are not rats." and that's again all about the code you know and and i i just i love that that's something about the film that i it, it's it there is everyone in the movie is deeply allergic to exposition these are men who only speak when absolutely necessary <laughs> and recognize the essential nature of each other that they're all part of this code and this this internal kind of like rule this rule and uh and it's funny to see that and a lot of crime movies do that and i think that's a that's something that's great about the genre uh you know we watched I watched recently the second uh, John Wick movie uh, and uh, and it talks about the code as well, but it's very uh, explicit about it. It's not implicit. and I I mean it's fun. it makes I mean John Wick is just fun, you know, action action madness but uh, but yeah that's it's the director's i th- feel like the director of that film has absorbed all those lessons from crime dramas of the past but is now and spitting them out but is actually pointing the finger at at these these kinds of codes rather than it just being understood he's like we're going to talk about the code and we're going to show the elements of the code
0: and yeah. and it's all going to be very overt yeah it's definitely like he's watched a lot of melville and john wu because <laughs> john wu <Woo laughs> maybe yeah. for the, the the shootouts and and melville for the kind of the character uh uh stoicness and 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 motivation so it's interesting to see those two influences kind of converging in such an overt way in, in John but but also at the same time when you know watching the John Wick movies and realizing these don't exist in our reality these these like you know like when it turns out that like half the population are all assassins <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> right just like, Hmm. I don't think this is uh reality as we know it, but you could say the same thing about the red circle
1: though. Every, every one time we have a new scene, like in the nightclub or there, you kind of get a sense like the cameras prowling around looking for the criminals, like who or the, even the cops. I mean, they're all the same, but they all understand that this world is of, of, uh, of, you know, mixed ethics and, uh, and uh, compromise uh, is, is, uh, you know this this world of crime is is something they all share, and uh, and so they will recognize each other. And I think that's that's what's great. And I, I also want to quickly say that uh, I love the Parisienne and the French locations. Great sense of place and the color palette is just gorgeous I I love the Mm. look of this film and I just love those nods to sort of the passion for American gangster movies there is no mistake that Delon's character buys an American car when he's in Marseille and the jazzy soundtrack uh, you know, goes from just sort of like free jazz fusion to like definitely suspense builder music, uh, depending
0: on the scene. And then above it all, you've got that, uh, the internal affairs investigator who, you know, he's an older dude. He's seen a lot of stuff go down, you know, during the war and so on. And he just assumes that all men are you crook, crook. There's a fine line between cops and crooks and they're all basically evil on the inside. And and just, you know, to have the 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 one guy at the top of the law, Uh, chain say come out and say that it's pretty pretty astonishing yeah yeah Uh, one
1: other thing I also wanted to say I wondered idly about two-thirds of the way through whether there are going to be any women in this movie that had lines of dialogue (laughs) and you know what I don't know if there I can't even remember for sure if there are any women who actually speak in the film it's it's truly a, a story
0: of of dudes yeah kind of a drawback there Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Lends Me Your Ears and a look at uh, some of the films on Roger Ebert's great films list that uh, we either hadn't seen or wanted to revisit and have kind of a similar kind of theme of tension and suspense, uh, loosely connecting three very different films. And uh, at the top of the uh, episode, when we were talking about uh, Louis Mal's Au Revoir, Les Enfants, I mentioned there's a connection between the film and and uh, a later contemporary filmmaker and that of course is the fact that um, au revoir les enfants was a favorite film of uh, of uh, Quentin Tarantino's and uh, the story goes that uh, when he worked in a video shop he would always because he, he could not pronounce any French he referred to au revoir les enfants as that reservoir movie <laughs> and uh, and uh, and of course the, uh, and the, so the joke is that's why reservoir dogs is is sort of feature directorial debut um was called that because uh you know the dogs was probably a, a nod to maybe straw dogs by sam peckinpah and the reservoir was just that in joke for his friends at the video store uh <laughs> about that reservoir film that yes. he made, made his own reservoir film
1: uh, weirdly and, there's a character named quentin in the movie. And, yeah, that's and, another and, strange coincidence yes
0: and the louis mal character uh his um His sort of stand-in in in, in the movie. His last name is Quentin, which is just which I didn't know until I watched it. I knew about the au au revoir uh, um, kind of uh, reference, but I had no idea that there's a character with the same name. So that was just an extra little uh, weird grace note. Maybe that's why I like the film because it was one of the few films where there's someone named Quentin in it. And uh, oddly enough, uh, I actually got to see Reservoir Dogs premiere at the Toronto International Film Fest. And um, I remember. somebody asking what the title meant because of course there's there's no reservoir in the movie and uh you know I don't think there are any dogs there might be a line about dogs or something like that but it was you know just clearly the title was just like I meant to sound like a cool title and somebody asked I think Lawrence Bender I think was his partner on that one or or Avery maybe um not one of the not one of the on-screen people but uh you know Tarantino's co-producer co-writer um what the title meant and they just said none of your effing business <laughs> you know, they, w- they wouldn't even like let on to the joke so I, I you know I remember that and then I also remember somebody asking Steve Bashemi why he always plays such weaselly characters which he <laughs> took great offense at and although at that point you know it was a, you know mostly I could just think of him in that and Miller's Crossing so it was hard to well I can see why you'd think that but why would you ask that question uh but that, that's uh you know so it was and it was of course fun to see that film before hearing anything about it just Thing. Oh, it's a cool gangster film. Uh, and then finding out it was so much more. Uh, well, that's, that's it for our show this week. Um, I'm Steven cook and uh, I can be reached at uh, N at NS underscore S C O O K E. Yeah. And I'm Karsten Knox. Uh,
1: my blog is at Halifax I think I mentioned that um, I am on Twitter at
0: flaw in the iris named after my blog title. And, of course, you can find Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook. We have a Twitter account, at Lends Me Your Ears, and uh, an email account, Lends Me Your Ears Podcast" at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show or past episodes that you can find on iTunes and Stitcher and, and elsewhere, you can always uh, drop by our Patreon and throw some money our way, if you so desire. And, uh, of course, as always, thanks to the folks at CKDU for the use of their fine facilities and the Village Soundcast Network.
1: Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the Village Soundcast Network, all music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.